brought to you by Penguin. Welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about writing. I'm Izzy Sutty, and today I'm going to be talking to the incredible Jarvis Cocker. Best known as the lead singer of Pulp, Jarvis is also an accomplished broadcaster, having hosted Sunday service on BBC Six Music for eight years, as well as the Radio 4 documentary series Wireless Nights. His new book, Good Pop, Bad Pop, described by The Guardian as a history of Jarvis Cocker in a hundred objects, examines the accumulated debris of his life via items he finds whilst clearing out his attic. Um, Thank you so much for joining me, Jarvis. Nice to be here. Nice to get out of the loft for a minute. Yeah, of course. So I love the book. It's so warm. It's so funny. It really is so funny. Like, there's an early bit about a guy at a car boot sale tipping up a vase and, like, a brown slurry falls out of it down his sleeve. Like a discarded pot noodle. (laughs) And there's so many bits that made me laugh out loud, which is very unusual for me because I'm quite cynical now about about humour, but you you broke that. There's a bit where you talk about the NME Awards and the lead singer of a band comes on who you don't name and he's trying to swing the mic round around his head to make him look cool and it gets wider and wider in the book i call it the circumference of danger because he yeah because he was just letting the cable out more so that it was spinning you know and the band were having to like duck he obviously hadn't practiced it so he didn't know how to bring the cable back in and then start singing it's actually a real art isn't it i'd never thought about it till i read that yeah he should have just rung up roger daltrey i suppose he could have given him a master class in it or something he's the one who's famous for doing that yeah I've, i've never tried that i just think it's dangerous well it is but it feels like the kind of thing that you shouldn't have to practice doesn't it it feels like the kind of thing you should be like hey i just feel like doing this Mm. and that's obviously what he thought yeah and then he just he did need the master class he did need the master class and 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 it's that noise of a microphone falling on the ground is such a terrible noise like we could we could you know when you go that's that's a gentle version of it and as you say it didn't hit anyone thankfully thankfully yeah. yeah it's very intimately written in the sense that you feel like you are up in the loft with you and it's really well paced it felt like a really calming lovely book to read and it's so warm and for fans of pulp there's so much about the ethos of the band and especially like the early days of the band and you've always collected things i'm not a hoarder so i throw things away really really easily i've got that from my mum i'm jealous of you but do you really do you wish that you could throw things away because it seems like you love collecting this stuff and there's so much joy that you have in going through it there is now, but then the thing is, you know, this stuff has been in a loft for 20 years, some of it longer. So maybe I've got some joy out of it now at the age of 58, but I mean, that's a long time to cart loads of crap around <laughs> with you. I am glad that it was there because it gave me a way to write about myself that was almost objective, you know, because it was objects that I was looking at. So it was things that I'd owned, things that I'd used Sometimes the things mystified me. It had never really appealed to me, the idea of doing a memoir. But having found a different way to do it, that made it more fun, you know. Because I think you can't avoid but revise your opinion of yourself as you get older. Basically, you just want to make people think that you're nice. (laughs) But you're not always nice or even sensible. You know, it's like you learn, don't you? You learn how to live as, as you do it. Yeah, you do. But most people, I suppose, don't have that opportunity to look back at 
all those items. I think it was a lovely window into specific moments of your life. And I think it was a lovely way of doing what to me is part memoir, but it also feels like part life philosophy, part adventure really it's like each object opens a little door and sometimes it's just a brief thing of like I don't know why I kept this here's a funny story about it and sometimes it goes quite deep into a surprise that you might have felt whilst looking at the object I much preferred it to a classic memoir where you get I was born here and then because you see the things that you're talking about and the design is so beautiful did you know Julian who did the design first Julian House, yeah, he's he's got a design company called Intro and he used to do a lot of record sleeves that I liked. He worked a lot with a band called Broadcaster, if you remember them. And he's got a label called Ghost Box and I think that's where I first took notice of him because he did quite a few sleeves that were based on old BBC kind of educational records. When I was doing my show, you know, the Sunday service, I used to get things out of the library because, you know, the BBC's got an amazing record library and hardly anybody uses it anymore because you have to kind of fill in a form and say, can we have that record? And it, it comes four days later. So it's like, I wanted it today or whatever. <laughs> but luckily my producer on the show, Adam Deneen, had a good relationship with them. So I used to love getting these old, some good records like of Ted Hughes reading his poetry and stuff like that and things that he'd recorded, especially for the BBC. And so we used to play a few of those and they've got these really nice covers, a bit like, you know, did you ever have a spirograph when you yeah. were a kid? You know, when you get those kind of nice patterns. Uh, they've got covers like that. And I saw that Julian had done some covers with this same kind of pattern on. So I thought, oh, look, we're on the same wavelength there. And I tried to kind of do some projects with him when I was doing a bit of work at Faber and Faber and trying to get a couple of projects off the ground and get him to design them, but they, they didn't happen. So when it came to the book, I just thought, right, this is it now. We can do this. And I went to his office and I did a PowerPoint presentation of... A couple of objects, and it was like a 40-minute PowerPoint presentation. There was him and a couple of other people, and, and at the end they said, oh, yeah, let's do it then. So was this before, did God, you have the deal ago. then? And did they say, go and get someone to design it? Or was this when you no. just had the idea and you were like, I want no, him on board? I've learned a lot about writing. You know, I mean, that's the thing that I've said, you know, I've done a few events since the book comes out, and I always say that I, I had to learn to write in a different way for this I might have thought that I could write because I've been writing songs for so long, but it's such a different way of writing. You've got no music or anything to back it up. I mean, the pictures do a little bit of that. And also, at first, the book was going to be more like a PowerPoint presentation, a bit more vaguely about creativity, and and the loft was one little illustrative strand within it. And then this woman called Anna Fletcher at Jonathan Cape said, dump the rest of it and just make it about the loft because that's the most interesting bit. That's interesting, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and, and, you know, I, I, at first I got a bit like, how dare you? Uh, and then I kind of realised that she was right. And once I decided to do that, then it became clear. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's good because it's a neat concept, you know, go into a loft, see the things, look at them, clear it out, end of book. And then because you choose to keep or chuck it, that also says something about how you feel about that part of your life and the item. So you've got that as well as an extra layer, whether you decide to keep or chuck. Yeah, that's why I decided to look at the stuff, because I've got friends who live in that house. You know, they might want to store their own rubbish in the loft. I hadn't lived there for like 20 years, so, you know, the easy way to do it would have just been to get a skip and chuck it all in a skip straight away and say, hey, I'll put your stuff in there now. But I just kind of knew somewhere at the back of my mind that 
I shouldn't do that, that I should look at it all, and that there was some kind of story lying in wait for me there. And it, and it turned out that to be true. What were the other strands? Can you remember that when you came up with that first, were they things like The Loft, like tickets to gigs uh, and stuff? No, no, it was more... I have been doing this PowerPoint presentation thing for a while. There was one section that dealt with traffic cones. <laughs> There's a bit of it still in the book, you know, this idea that everybody is creative. In fact, that is what makes us human, you know, that we take in information about the world and we organise it within our skulls in a certain way. And that's a creative act because what we remember and what we don't and what we combine is is kind of creation, you know, and, and we're the only species that can do it, you know. Dogs don't do it. So th- there was a bit of that, and, and the way that I tried to illustrate that was through this visualisation of a traffic cone. So I said, everybody, close your eyes and visualise a traffic cone. So then people would do that, and I'd say, OK, now, some of you may be thinking of a traffic cone just as something that directs traffic on a road. Some of you who went to university or college might think, oh, yeah, my friend Jez used to have one of those in the corner of his flat as a <laughs> yeah, light. Or that's something. what I was thinking. Yeah, there you go. And then other people who are a bit more arty, whatever, might think, oh, yeah, Kraftwerk had like a traffic cone on the cover of their first two albums. And then somebody who likes to download dubious internet content might think of this App. I think it's called VLC. I always want to say VPL, but it's not um, VLC, which is like you can play any ripped video thing on it. So, and its symbol is a traffic cone. So, that that was my idea that we all kind of are in the same world. We're all seeing the same world, but the way that we then construct it within our heads is different, and that's a creative act. I really like. Are you that. sold? I am sold. I think that's got to be a separate book. <laughs> well, that line runs throughout the book, even though you haven't got the traffic cones in oh. there. I think the brilliant thing about the loft is you've got such a variety of stuff in there. But that stuff about creativity is part of the bed of, of the book to me. I love the bit where you talk about how you were hosting a music class for kids and the way the kids approach the instrument is so different from when you're an adult because they'll look at it. They don't necessarily know how to play it, but they'll work out the best way that they can get a noise from it. Mm, usually the most amount of noise possible. Yeah. <laughs> don't you say that initially there's this cacophony of noise and then it dies down? Yeah, I mean, that's it. You, if you're doing a, I haven't done that many, but if you're doing a music class with kids, you give them the instruments and then I just put my fingers in my ears for the first 10 minutes because they're just going... <laughs> and then eventually, you know, their arms start to get tired or they're giving themselves a headache or getting bored. And then you can kind of say, well, look, let's all try and make something happen. In the book, you know, I, I remember, you know, I've got this cassette of one of Pulp's very first rehearsals and it's just so unlistenable. You know, it's just like we went round to my grandma's house because they had like an electric organ in the corner. So we had that on. I had this guitar. And then we didn't have drums, so somebody was hitting the coal scuttle with the kind of, you know, that thing that you brush ashes off the hearth with. Yeah. And it's just like that for 20 minutes. I mean, it's horrible. <laughs> and it's like a competition to see who can make the most noise. Coal scuttle kind of wins out because it's a bit metallic. Because we just didn't know. We, we knew that we wanted to be in a band, but we had no musical ability i guess we thought that something like a song would magically appear but it didn't yeah like you're putting all the ingredients in so it's only a matter of time before it magically comes about yeah it was a nice thing to believe as we were doing that there was just this one bit where a shaft of sunlight kind of shone through the curtains and it dazzled us all and we just had to stop and then i went ah the sun and suddenly in the middle of all this cacophony there's something where everything happens at the same time 
And that was a clue that, like, that's what a band's about, you know, that everybody's doing their own thing maybe, but if you can synchronise it a bit, then it starts to become music. Yeah. Um, there's so much about Sheffield in the book, and mm. I know some of the venues you mentioned, like the Lead Mill. Did you ever go to the Limit? No, I never went to the Limit, and I know you talk about it a lot in the book, don't do, you? Was, do. Does that still exist? No, no. It was run by this gangster called George Webster, and it got filled in with concrete, probably with some other people in there as well. Did it get filled in? <laughs> They just filled it. It was in a basement, you know, and they just filled it with concrete. It's down the bottom of West Street. You probably know West Street. Yeah, I do know West Street. Towards the City Hall, yeah. Yes. It's good. It's like psychogeography now, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Um, Do you think, if you'd grown up in, like, Torquay, do you Mm. think Pulp would have been who they are? Do you think Sheffield played a part in building Pulp? That's an interesting question. I think so. I mean, we weren't a Sheffield band in that kind of classic Sheffield band thing of, say, like Cabaret Voltaire or the Human League. You know, a lot of the bands in the immediate aftermath of punk use synths. That's what Sheffield was known for, the drummerless trio. So you would have like three guys with like Max on uh, playing synths, singing with some loads of echo on it, and then like a drum machine or some kind of tape doing the rhythm. And there are loads of bands like that. So Cabaret Voltaire, Human League. The early incarnation of ABC was called Vice Versa and they were the same kind of thing. So we missed that first wave because I'm a bit younger than them, you know. So we were more like trying to be a pop band, not trying to be uh, an industrial trio or whatever. But I've only really realised it in retrospect. All those kind of things about Sheffield, you know, Steel City and all that, used to really get on my nerves. But then... um, a few years ago, I got asked to do, you know, when you do those things where people will write a score for a film, there was a compilation of films about the steel industry. And when I was first asked to do it, I thought, no, you know, that's every cliche about Sheffield that I don't want to be involved with, Steel City, the little masters with the scissors, whatever. Uh, well, we all lived in back-to-backs, didn't we? Uh, brass bands come round on Sunday, whatever. And I just don't like all that stuff. But then I was watching some of the footage and it was this really old bit of film of some steel workers in, I think, Rotherham, actually, from like the end of the 19th century. And in the middle of this stuff, it's just people walking into the factory and just there's these guys filing into the factory and then one of them turns around to the camera and just gives it the rods. And I thought, wow, that's good. And then I realised, it's not like I love to give people the rods, but immediately it reminded me of the film Kes, which is one of my favourite films, you know. And this northern attitude of F you, I won't do what you tell me or whatever, you know. Like the Arctic Monkeys album title, you know, whatever they say, that's what I'm not, that's taken from the Albert Finney film, you know. Which is a working class attitude, I suppose, that, that people were kind of being used up by working in factories and stuff like that and just thought, I'm not going to take notice of you, I'm going to do my own thing. So then we ended up doing that soundtrack and and watching this stuff and I thought, yeah, actually, I have to admit it, Sheffield's really formed me a lot. Torquay, we would have been playing surf music, I guess. Yeah, maybe you would. (laughs) We wouldn't have been going to the same music venues and you wouldn't have had the same group of friends. You wouldn't have lived in the Wicker this um, oh, yeah, the old, factory old, that mm. you ended up. If I'd had the opportunity to live in the Wicker, I would have been there. Would you? Yeah. It wasn't healthy, though. I mean, because yeah. I was living on this top floor, what I thought was like a New York downtown loft, but actually was just, you know, 
He could see cracks between the slates because it had never been meant for human habitation. Because so it was a factory, wasn't it? It had been a factory, and yeah. And your mate was the caretaker of it, and so he got to live there for free. Yeah, so there were this suite of rooms at the top of the building which uh, he was allowed to live in if he kind of swept the corridors and stuff like that and changed light bulbs, you know, and put toilet rolls in toilets and things. And uh, he, he asked if I wanted to live there as well. And it was, it was great, you know, I just thought, oh, yeah, I'm arty now. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, we asked you to bring in a few things to talk to us about. We always do on this podcast. Um, And the first one that you brought in is an exercise book. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is that um, obviously the whole book is based on objects, but I didn't want to just reiterate the book. But I mentioned the exercise book because um, that's something that we see towards the beginning of the book. And it's an old uh, science exercise book that had originally belonged to my mum. And that was one of the early objects that I found. And it kind of convinced me that this kind of inkling that I had, that I should look at everything, was the right thing to do. Because I kind of vaguely recognised it when I picked it up. But then when I opened it, what it turned out to be was like, basically, I'd written a whole kind of manifesto about how pulp were going to be. It starts off with what clothes pulp are going to wear this would have been before i actually had managed to persuade anybody else to be in the band maybe it was like a recruitment thing i don't know and then there's like this kind of uh when pulp become famous what they're going to do uh, so i was kind of uh, amazed that i'd kind of forgotten it and so it really opened something up that i wouldn't have been able to remember otherwise do you write in a particular book now like does it matter to you what you write on, or can you just pick up the back of an envelope if you think of an idea? Well, the trouble is with envelopes. So I've got my little book here. Um, that's a red pocket. Oh, I love those these books. These are nice, yeah. yeah. I, I didn't used to use notebooks. I've got notebooks now. But to be honest, and this is sad really, most of the time I'll make notes on my phone. In the notes app? Yeah. But, but it's, you know, you're not going to lose it. I think that's yeah, the Yeah, and also it's good because I often will wake up with a well, like a phrase. Sometimes it doesn't make any sense, but I'll write it down. You know, if you, you can kind of do it whilst you're almost still asleep. And sometimes it's just like, oh, oh anything. Mm, right, okay. <laughs> but sometimes it can be a decent idea, you know. And if you had to kind of get your book out and turn the light on and stuff like that, it would just probably evaporate before you had a chance to write it down. Yeah, I think you're right, but it's like the opposite to certainly how I feel about... When I write, I often have to write with my hand first as opposed mm. to typing it. But I think you're right. When you get an idea, it does the purest way to get it down actually weirdly does seem to be in your phone because you don't have the kerfuffle and have, of having to open a book and grab a pen and stuff. Mm. Sunday once told me that if you want to write something sincere, you have to write it with a pen first. Their theory was that, like, the veins in your hand are connected to your heart and so therefore you can write something that's from the heart if you do that and typing isn't quite the same but you're still using your fingers aren't you and maybe it's because you grip the pen but anyway they, they said that and I have done that sometimes if I have to write an important letter and I do want to make sure that it's true I will write it but for the book I'm not saying the book isn't sincere but I just typed it because I wouldn't have been able to do it you know thinking about when people just used to write it longhand or, or stand there typing. 
I just don't know how they did it. No, I know. And I think using a typewriter must have been different from using a computer as well because you couldn't really make mistakes in the same way that you can. You couldn't do rewrites immediately because no. you would have typed it out. Well, somebody was telling me, yeah, this guy who said he'd just put X's through things if, if he'd made a mistake. Yeah. I said, didn't you use Tipex? He, he, he kind of went off. <laughs> Like, as if Tipex was the worst idea ever. Maybe that's why it's called Tipex, because it's like the equivalent of putting X's through the, the words. It probably I ne- is, never thought know, of that. Tip X. Yeah, never thought of that. Yeah, I mm. think it must be. Yeah. You know the ethos, like, you had the ethos first of Pulp. Mm. Did you say before you had any songs? Yeah. Before you had formed the band? And that manifesto really stuck in my mind in the exercise book. It's got diagrams and everything. Mm. I feel like you've carried that forward Mm. Was there ever a period where you felt like it was being compromised? Like, I don't know, management or something was getting you to do stuff that didn't feel quite right or wear clothes that you didn't want to wear? Or have you always been able to just go, I'm following my instincts? Pretty much. I mean, that's the thing that's... When I saw... Because, as you say, in this manifesto, it's got this kind of pie-in-the-sky idea that we're going to uh, become famous and have our own record label and and we're going to emancipate repressed artists, you know, from the grip of major record companies. Yeah, it's a big um, fist, isn't it, holding... Give them their artistic freedom, which, you know, I was kind of really touched by that, that I thought that. I don't know quite where that came from, probably because it was in the aftermath of punk happening and that was supposed to be like, let's have a fresh start. I think when you've got ideas that go into your mind at an early age, they're just there and you kind of just think they're facts. They've been in your head for so long. So I think that's partly to do with, yeah, when Pulp did get some success, I wasn't just happy with that. I think it was like, oh, now we have to change the world. Now the revolution starts. And of course it didn't work out that way. And maybe that's why I got a bit, uh, crestfallen about it but I mean I might end up investigating that if I write another book I suppose It's funny because I, I wouldn't know that from the outside it feels mm. like you have changed but if you were told that you would have had the success that Pulp has had and mm. continues to have when you were young you might have gone wow that's going to be amazing but no matter what success you get the horizons just change don't you and your ambitions shift Human beings just are never satisfied it's yeah. really awful really and I'm trying to get more like that. Like I was at Glastonbury this weekend and it was just nice to be there. You know, like Glastonbury is a good example. You know, you go there and you might have got a list of all the bands you want to see and all this kind of thing. And if you do that, you'll just be miserable because you'll be just walking, walking, walking and get tired and, and never really get into it. But there's a kind of thing that after about five hours of being there, you just kind of give up on that and just go with the flow, as they say, and then you have a good time. And I think you just have to to learn how to do that in life as well, is the thing. You know, I guess we have to have ambitions and things, but don't think that they're going to make you happy if you achieve them, because you, you'll, like you say, you'll just move the horizon on and you'll still be looking for the next thing. So yeah. try and enjoy it as you go along. Yeah, it sounds obvious, but it's so true. A whole time I'd say to myself, just have a good day. Like You don't have to do loads of stuff. You can just cook a pie and do a little bit of work. It's fine. Yeah. Do you think you would have retained your love for making music? personally, if you hadn't, this is completely hypothetical, of course, but if you hadn't ended up making a living from it, and if Pulpit had no success, if you had no success as a solo artist, do you reckon you would have been like working as a quantity surveyor now, but playing your guitar every night and carrying on? No, because I've never had a proper job, really. I mean, I started the group at school 
when school came to an end, then I was kind of emboldened by the fact that we'd had this John Peel session, so I kept doing it. The nearest I got to a job was I worked in this kind of special needs centre for kids with hearing difficulties, which was quite good fun, actually. Because they had a ball pool. I'd never seen a ball pool before. And um, they were always losing the hearing aids in there. And I'd say, oh, I'll, I'll find it. And so, because I just like diving in and, and uh, find them. So uh, that I only did that for about three months. So I'm not really, I haven't got any other skill. I haven't got any other skill sets. Have you? But I guess what I mean is, do you reckon you needed your artistry to be recognised and appreciated, or do you think if you'd been born, say, in like 200 years ago, where mm. being in a band wasn't a thing, mm. would you still be songwriting? Around the fire. I say, I'd be singing like that, all right. I don't know. I mean, that's the thing that I found through looking through the loft, you know, all these bits of rubbish, that I'm really a product of the age that I grew up in. I had a space obsession, like loads of kids of my generation, because Star Trek and Doctor Who were on telly, and they actually landed on the moon in 1969. I mean, wow, you know. So th- those things, for like a five- and six-year-old kid we're indistinguishable you know it's just like space is the place so there's that and then bands you know the Beatles were around in my very formative years so that thing of a band was a thing that I hate using the word working class or whatever but you know kids from my kind of background had this super big beacon of hope that like oh look they did it they're the biggest band in the world they're the most kind of culturally influential thing that's happened And they're just from Liverpool, you know, they're just like you, just brought up in the same kind of background as you. So that was amazing, you know, and made this big outpouring of creativity that came from what I call good pop, I suppose. Good pop as in it's come from the population, it's come from the populace. It's not something that you're getting handed down from up high. You're making it yourself. That's good pop to me. Yeah. Um, Well, let's move on to your next object. This is a pair of earplugs. Well, I don't know about you, because I know you do writing as well, but I can't have any noise or any distractions when I'm writing. It's the same if I was writing a song. You know, there can't be the telly on. I can't hear some music or something like that. I don't often, that often, put earplugs in, but I have had to do it sometimes. Sometimes you can get away with just putting some headphones on and pretending that you're listening to music, but it kind of dulls sound. Yeah. But yeah, I, I can't have any form of distraction especially the telly if there's a telly on it doesn't matter what's on i'll just yeah, watch you write it about that in the book yeah, don't you can't help it so you wouldn't ever go to a cafe or anything even if there weren't many people no. in there even like the clinking of teacups and stuff would that be enough to because i'd just find something else to distract me you know i have to be in a not a monastic kind of uh, i've never been on a writer's retreat or anything like that but the book was written sometimes up in the peak district sometimes in an apartment in paris Sometimes in Shepherd's Bush. <laughs> Sometimes on trains. Trains are okay, actually. In fact, tra- I think that's really nice because you can kind of get on a train. I never did interrailing as a, you know, as a teenager, but you know, you can get on in Frankfurt, get on one of those like long trains that's like for four hours, and just write for four hours, and then you're in another city. It's like whoa, multitasker. Yeah, and then you feel like you've earned the right to really have a good look around. Yeah. You've done your work. Mm. Can you write songs if other people... I can't write a song if anyone can hear me. So if my other half's in the house, I'd get him to go out. I write about that a bit in the book, that my first attempts at songwriting were up in my bedroom. And I'd got this guitar that had been given from my mum's boyfriend, who was a 
a scuba diving instructor who'd been in a band in his younger life. So he brought me this guitar. And when he brings it to you, I, I thought I was, I was like, he's got to have brought it. Because when he brings it, there's a moment where he looks like he hasn't brought it, doesn't it? Yeah, he'd, he told me, we, we, my mum had met him on this holiday that we went on to Ibiza and I got friendly with him and he said, I'll bring you a guitar. And then when he turned up at Christmas, he just had a normal suitcase with him. And I thought, oh, he's, he's forgot it. And I thought, but then it was hurrah because he, he was only allowed one piece of luggage on the plane. So he'd, he'd taken the neck off and wrapped it in some clothes. So then he just like reconstructed it and that was it. I had a guitar. You know, that was like, da-da. Uh, but then I had to kind of try and learn how to play it. And so I, I didn't like the idea that somebody could hear me trying to do it because I just didn't know what I was doing. And I, I do say at some point that I think self-consciousness is, is like the, one of the biggest enemies of creativity. I think you have to kind of lose yourself, but losing yourself in your bedroom when your mum and sister might be able to hear you is not that easy. No, it's true. <laughs> so have you got like a little room that you can retire to to do well, that? When we were in a flat in Elephant and Castle, I used to go in the bathroom because the acoustics were really good, but also, weirdly, it was soundproofed, even though it was a tiny flat. Mm. And we tested it because he went in and played and I couldn't hear him. So I just used to sit on the bathroom floor for like six hours and just with right. my notebook and right there. Now we're in a split level maisonette. I go up to my son's bedroom because it's right at the top. But I still find it tricky. I'd much prefer for there to be no one in the house. Mm. But I think as you get older, you just make do with what you what you can. Well, you made do with what you could when you were young. You know, you had to, you couldn't ask everyone to go out of your house. You couldn't be like, I'm going to play the guitar now. Everyone go out. You just have to do it, don't you? But I totally agree about the self-consciousness thing. You don't want to be thinking about anything else. It's a bit like the noise thing. And if half of you is thinking, oh, God, I hope they can't hear me try and work out this bit. No, but that's it. And, and I wonder whether that's healthy. And I've always had this thing, and I, I'm trying to get to the bottom of it, you know, not wanting to be overheard. I don't think I'm ever going to be one of these, like, let it all hang out, baby, OK, take me as I am, you know. What you see is what you get, or whatever. I don't want to be one of those people, but I'd like to loosen up a bit. But, you know, when you're creating something in secret, I think that's with a view to eventually sharing it with people. It's yeah, you want to get it right. It that's, yeah. yeah. Mm. So I think that's different from hiding something away. As I get older, I'm like, I'm not really going to fundamentally change, you know. No, that's true. But like all this stuff in the loft basically was hidden away. And I think that's why it kept preying on my mind that like, I guess everybody does it. You think, okay, I'm going to deal with that later. What do people say now? Let's park it there or whatever. Yeah, people say <laughs> Let's that. Let's put it on ice. Yeah, whatever, you know, just like, okay, I can't handle it. It's either too stressful or whatever. Let's park it there and I'll come back to it later. But of course, you very seldom actually do that. You just forget it's there. I know. It? But I did actually decide to do it. it. Was it sometimes really tiring to look? I sometimes. Yeah, it was it, tiring. It can be, can't it? Well, because it, just physically it was tiring because it's in the loft conversion. So there's a bedroom which actually is inhabited by a 16 year old boy. And there's these like little cubby hole type things at the edge. So is it like in the eaves? Like yeah, in the eaves. Yeah. I, I describe it as being like in a large Toblerone packet, yeah. you know, like that. But at its highest point, it's three foot. So you can't stand up. You have to go in through this hatch and then kind of launch yourself. So it's a bit like swimming through this debris, then pick stuff up, 
reverse, try not to bang your head on, on, on things, and then come back into the room and see what you've got. It's like a lucky dip, really. <laughs> yeah, sometimes lucky and sometimes not. It's funny because even though I knew that, because there's a photo of it, and the Toblerone thing mm. comes quite early on, mm. I imagined you writing it in the attic as you were looking at the stuff. So even though I knew... No, well, no, that's the idea. I mean, I've, I think that's part of a thing that I've developed from doing the radio show, you know, Wireless Nights. When I started doing that, I thought, oh, it's nice to address the listener as if they're there with you. And so I just thought that would be a way of engaging a reader, of saying, look, here we are, you help me. It is really engaging. Um, it feels very active when you're reading it. And it, I formed opinions on every item as to whether I would have keep, <laughs> kept them or chucked them, even though they didn't mean anything to me. That's the weird oh, thing. Good. Like the imperial leather reminded me of my grandma you... and granddad, oh. who used to have the old label. Because mm. I know you were seeking that old label of, of imperial leather because they made a new one. Mm. And I started thinking about Nana and Grandpa's house that I hadn't thought about for years. And, and also there's an alarm clock with a ballerina in it that you don't like. Mm. And I loved that. And I was like, oh, you've got to keep that. So I actually felt really when I was reading it that I was involved. Yeah, yeah. I've had to promise to give that clock to someone. Yeah, well, I'm not I, surprised. I like that clock. But the thing is, this was at the time when I was living at the Wicker that you mentioned earlier. So I was living in these kind of quite precarious circumstances. And I picked up this alarm clock from a market. It was a wind-up one, and there was a clock face, and then next to it there was this little plastic cell <laughs> with a ballerina in it. And, and when the alarm went off, it was really like a musical box, and then she danced. The thing was that as it wound down, the music got slower, and her movements would get like really... Uh, uh, uh. It was just like she was dying there, you know, right in front of your eyes. And that's not a nice thing to wake up to, like this little tiny imprisoned woman dying... <laughs> With this kind of depressing music playing, so that I got rid of it in the end. I suppose it's only good for people who get up and out of bed within a couple of seconds of it going off and yeah, turn it yeah. off. I've never been one of those people. Nor, nor have I. <laughs> um, I love the bit about you going to Cresswell Crags, which is a place I know as well, which is uh, where I think they found the first cave art there in Europe. Well, somebody told me that that's the only surviving bit of cave art in the whole of the UK. Yeah, I think it is. And I don't think you write about Cresswell Crags in the book, actually. I think I, I read it um, recently in in The Guardian. I'm yeah. not sure you write about Cresswell Crags in the book, but I remembered it because you say that you were so absorbed in this carving of a horse's head, mm. which I remember as well from when I went recently. And that reminds me of the thing of not wanting any outside noise when you're concentrating. Do you find that when you go and look at art that's got nothing to do with your output do you need that quiet to really absorb it i don't know about that i mean that thing about the cresswell crags was just something that really took me by surprise so it, it's not that far from my mum's house and uh, it was when my son was younger and he, you know, it was a school holiday and i was at a loose end and thinking what can i do to keep him occupied and my mum said go to cresswell crags so we went and, you know, so for me, it was just like one of them things like keep them quiet, you know, just get off my case. Don't stress me out. Let's just go and look at something and I'll buy you something from the gift shop afterwards if you're good. Whatever. You know, that was the level of my engagement with it. But then um, when we looked at this carving, I just got this wave of like emotion came over me. So I really wasn't expected at all. And, and so then it was me who spent more money in the gift shop because I thought I've got to find out why that touched me so I bought this book called The Mind in the Cave uh, and I always forget the name of the guy who's written it but anyway I got that and he's got all these theories about how really when 
mankind was basically living in caves, some change came, you know, some kind of, maybe what we were talking about earlier, this thing of humans being maybe the only species who've got a kind of perspective on themselves, you know, that can take what comes in and, like, make a representation of it and then show it to someone else and someone else goes, oh, yeah, I get you. Or, oh, yeah, I'll dance to that or whatever. So it's it's kind of like a technical book and I, I've, it took me about 10 years to read it and I still don't understand it. But this idea, maybe just that title, The Mind in the Cave, I thought, what a great title. Yeah. I think what moved me was just this idea of thinking that maybe you were seeing this kind of impulse in, in humans at one of its earliest stages, you know, that... You can you imagine like you've just had your dinner and you know you're in the dark or there's just like a bit of light flickering from a flaming torch and then you you kind of pick up i don't know a stone or a bit of bone and start scraping on a wall and somehow for some reason i imagined that they were lying on the back i don't know why because <laughs> that seems more cramped yeah. and just like scraping you know and, and making a picture and then somebody else will go oh yeah horse you know it's like magic isn't it yeah and also it was not a means to an end it was just I'm just going to make this. Because mm. there are fertility signs in those caves and witch marks, but they had a purpose. I think they're interesting in a different way because mm. they're to ward off spirits or to try and make you know fertility better. But to just have the picture of a horse, there's something really lovely about doing it just for the sake of doing it. It's like a shared moment. I think it's lovely that you have that moment. I think some people would never have that. You must be open to that kind of thing where some people aren't. I don't know. I think everybody's. It may be because I wasn't expecting anything of it. Yeah, but I sometimes this is, think that this yeah. is just. I had no expectations, so it got me. You know, it yeah. slipped under my defences and and touched me, and that's it. You know, that that something made by some unknown artist. I don't know how many ten thousand years ago, whatever. It still works. You know, that's amazing to me. You know, they it still operates and and can touch somebody all those years later. It was living such a completely different life yeah and he, he would never have or she would never mm. have known that this would happen mm. just done it yeah right let's move on to your third object it's a window <laughs> which i love well although we've discussed i don't want to be interrupted and i don't want distractions i don't think i could write in a place that didn't have a window and all the places that i have written have windows in different places so in the Peak District, there's a window in front of me and I can kind of see out of there and see some kind of distant hills. In the one in Paris, the window is behind me and I usually open the window and then there's a nice kind of breeze coming from behind me and, and I can kind of hear this tree rustling a bit in the background. In Shepherd's Bush, it's at the side of me and I don't know, I, I need to have a window there. It's like I want to know the world is there, but... Don't interrupt me. Yeah. <laughs> Keeping it at a safe distance, in a way. I think maybe that's why I, I decided to be on a stage. It's like people are at a safe distance then. You know, you're, you're, you're just a little bit higher than them. Maybe, you know, in some places the stage is only like a foot and a half, whatever. But just being that little bit raised up, maybe the nearest person is 10 foot away, just makes me feel more comfortable that I can then hold forth What's your ideal view out of a window, if you could choose anything? The nicest view is in the Peak District. You can see it's like a bit of a mountain pass. I don't know if you've ever been to Castleton. Yeah, I have, So yeah. if I can kind of see that. And you know there's this place called Winnett's Pass, which is like a mini Grand Canyon type of thing. So you can kind of see the road that leads up to there. You can't see too much man-made stuff. I suppose that's what I like to see. 
the idea that you're seeing a landscape that hasn't changed that much. So that's almost like a blank canvas, isn't it? If there's a man-made thing there, then somehow that seems to put me off in some way, yeah. Yeah, that's the equivalent of noise in a way. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I don't know, yeah. Do you like looking out of the window in the car? Are you much of a daydreamer? Well, especially when I'm driving, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I think you're legally required to do that, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> when you're a passenger. <laughs> like, do you daydream? You know, like I sometimes look out the window in the car mm. and I like half an hour's gone by and I've just often been planning out a creative thing, actually. Mm. But do you do that? Yeah, it's a nice thing that the world's sliding by you. You're kind of in it, but not in it because you're kind of, it's passing past you. That we, we we played a new song at Glastonbury this weekend and there's one line in that where it, it, I'm pretending to be a taxi driver, I don't know why. And it's goes something like the world slid by like the opening credits to a film. It seems like that, you know, having been brought up on telly and films, they have that kind of thing, don't they? You know, this text scrolls, you know, like in Star Wars, it kind of scrolls off into infinity and all that kind of stuff. And it's like you can kind of think that, you know, this is like the credits coming past you and then when you arrive at your destination, the story is going to start. Yes, it is like that. Mm. But you might be thinking about what it's going to be like, yeah, which is I, often what you do when the credits are rolling. Yeah, and and often that film that you imagine before it actually starts is much better than the one you end up watching. It's so true, yeah. Do you lose stuff easily and do you get frustrated by that? Like, are you likely to know where a brooch is from 1980, but not where, like, a doctor's letter is from the other day type? Oh, God, yeah, yeah. I misplace things. I don't usually lose things that much. I had an experience of that really recently. So when I started doing the kind of publicity for this book, the first interview I did was with Adam Buxton back in February. And I was trying to work out how to do it, and I thought, well, I'll take some of the objects with me. That'll be nice. So I got a few together and took them in a bag, and we... I got them out and one of them was the soap fragment that you mentioned so I now store that in a matchbox with some cotton wool in it to keep it nice and safe and snugly anyway so I showed him that da, 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 da. really enjoyed the interview went home da, da, da. and then there has been an exhibition of some of the objects at a gallery here in London which is closed now so we were getting ready for that and I couldn't find the bit of soap so I thought oh so I rang up the publishers because that's where the interview had been. I said, did I leave it there? Did you, were you taking a photograph of it or something like that? No, nobody's seen it. Da, da, da. This panic went on for a couple of weeks. The exhibition was getting nearer. I even went to the extent of going on eBay and there's actually a surprisingly large market for unused vintage soap. So I bought an old bar of imperial leather soap still in its packet and I thought what I'll have to do if I can't find it I just wash my hands constantly for like two days <laughs> and I'll wear it down just to the label and I'll, I'm just going to fake it you know and then luckily I, like I said bought the soap and then you know when you've lost something you keep going back to the same place even though you've looked yes, there like ten times and I went to this bag again and it was one of those I'm not blaming Daunt's or maybe it's foils it's bookshop anyway Sometimes you get like a tote bag and it's got like a sewn-in thing for putting your purse in or something yeah. like that. And I hadn't clocked that. And when I looked in that, the, the soap was there. So then I was really relieved 
then I thought, should I be relieved about that? Why did you panic so much? You know, this is why I say the jury's out on whether this kind of borderline hoarding has been a good thing in my life or not. I suppose you were panicking because it wouldn't have been the same fragment of soap. But who would know that? I know. <laughs> but to me, it seems like it's got to be the real thing. I understand that. Because there's like an authenticity to it that's important to you. Mm. It wouldn't have felt right to fake it. I do get that. It's because that fragment of soap is imbued with meaning and the other one wouldn't be. But as you say, what does it matter? It's like if a tree falls in the woods, but, but it does matter, I think. It matters to me, yeah, but... Um, but it wouldn't matter to certainly anyone doing your press wouldn't go, oh, it's not the same. <laughs> but it, it, it's important, I think. I think so, but as I say, whether that's a healthy attitude or not, I don't know. Well, let's move on to your next object. It's a power socket. Well, that's another thing, you know, we t- kind of talked about a bit earlier about the fact that I wrote the book on a computer. I think lots of people have this fantasy that one day they're going to write a book and... I guess the first thing you think is not not writing it with a quill, but uh, but writing it with a pen, you know, maybe with a breeze ruffling your hair while you're doing it or something like that, or on a typewriter. But I just realised really early on that a computer was the way to do it, so you need to have your power socket there. I had a terrible thing with my computer, a bit like my loft. There's no memory left in it, you know, it's obviously stuffed with things. And sometimes I would be writing, say, on a train or something like that and then when I tried to save it it would say not enough disk space so I had to do this thing where I had to kind of shrink it and then take a photo of it because then as soon as I turned the computer off it would lose the thing so I had to then reconstruct it that was stressful yeah back. <laughs> but the computer was really because you can move things around from space to space as I said I, I did have a couple of false starts writing the book but I, I was able to kind of salvage stuff that I wanted and just try it in different areas. There was even some stuff earlier on where I was trying to do it by talking the book at this woman who's a theatre director called Mary Franklin, but she's really good at typing. She can type while she talks. I thought, oh, yeah, that'll be easy. I'll just talk, and she'll write it, and the book will be done in, like, a week. And uh, I tried that, and it didn't really work, but some bits of that still kind of survived through to the end, small bits. And did you find that some of the items made you ring people you hadn't spoken to for ages and go, I found this thing? I didn't talk to that many people during the course of writing it. I mean, the obvious ones would be my mum and my sister because they feature quite heavily in it. But I was a bit naughty there, really, because my mum, I gave her like a printout of it, but it was like two months before it was coming out, so there was no way it was going to get changed. (laughs) <laughs> so, but I gave it to her. She was visiting me, and I went downstairs. I thought, oh, I hope it's going to be all right. And then I heard her laughing, so that was nice. And my sister's okay with it as well. Oh, that's good. I think you just have to rely on your remembrance of it, even though people have pointed out certain things that are not quite right. If you kind of believe something, then it's true to you. Absolutely. It was like the traffic cone thing, isn't it? And even an object like the Barry White cassette in the book got a picture of that which yeah it's a lovely color isn't it this barry white cassette i think it's a very beautiful object like a nice sage green yeah it's like a sage green with white with a white label on it so many of these objects if you'd looked at them like 10 years ago you might have had different feelings about them from the feelings that you had on the day that they were brought out i mean some of them you'd probably be like that's the thing but there are some things where you've got more of an emotional connection to it where Mm. Even you, a different version of you, might have said a different story about them. Yeah, if I wanted to be optimistic, I'd say by some kind of happy 
accident, I, I decided to go and look at the stuff at, at a time when I was ready to do it. You know, uh, I'm not going to get morbid now, but, you know, I'm, I'm getting on a bit now. So there's probably more life behind me than in front of me. So at some point you kind of do start to look through it and think, OK, what, what have I done? My friend was saying the other day that she doesn't want her kids... She's got loads of stuff in her loft. She's 43 like me, but she said, I don't want my kids when I eventually pass to, away. To have to, to deal have with to, it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, that was a really funny thing, actually. So I started this clearing the loft out. and Because um, what happened, I split up with my partner, and that's really what triggered it. I kind of thought, I'm sick of messing things up. I want to kind of get off this kind of wheel of making the same mistakes. And maybe there's a clue in there of all this stuff that I've hidden away for so long. That's really what, what was why I decided to do it. Anyway, so I, I kind of did it. And then the day after I'd finished, I was listening to Radio 4 and it was Book of the Week. And they said, and coming up next, Swedish death cleaning. And I thought, what? Well, I must have misheard that. Surely it's, it's Swedish desk cleaning or something like that. But... And I've, I'm sorry that I've forgotten the name of the author, but it, basically the premise of that book was what you've just been talking about. This woman has written a book about how she started going through all the accumulated stuff of her life because she didn't want her kids to be left with it all when she passed away. And I thought, oh, maybe that's why I've done it then. But I wasn't aware of that when I was doing it. Yeah, well, I think there's something to be said for it. I mean, my mum hasn't left me with very much stuff to go through, so... I'm grateful. But when my dad died, there was loads of stuff like stamp collections and I wouldn't wanted him to throw it away. But it, it's it's a hard job sometimes, isn't it, going through that stuff? It is, yeah, because, like, for instance, there are some photos in the book that were taken by my grandfather, these slides. That was how I came across those, actually. So when my grandma passed away, I had to kind of help clear out their house. And there was just this... I remember my granddad doing slideshows when I was a kid but they were always really boring because it was just like we went to Portugal and then there's like look at this lovely Bougainvillea and look at this cathedral look at this cove or mountain or whatever and then there was this one box of slides that just had family scratched onto the top of it and they were all these amazing pictures of us all when we were super young you know like four or five years old even younger than that so I kept that you know that was like a time capsule but yeah a lot of stuff it's kind of hard to throw it away because you know that they've kept hold of it and it's like you're throwing a bit of them away. But uh, you, you've just got to do it. What did I keep of my grandma? She had one of them grabbers. You know those things that people pick up litter with, oh, you know, like because yeah. she w wasn't so mobile towards the end, so she, she would kind of pick things up with this grabber. You use it in the house? Yeah, so yeah. I've got that. Oh, yeah, they're really useful. <laughs> yeah, well, that's useful and, uh, and has sentimental value. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, well, let's move on to your last object. This is a large desk, not just any desk, a large desk. Yeah, because I like to be able to put all the objects. Well, when I was writing this book, you know, I, I, for a long time, as I say, I wrote it in different locations. And so whenever I went anywhere, I would have this big bag with me. And then when I got to where I was writing, I would get things out and put them on the desk and kind of look and sometimes think, oh, yeah, let's go to that object next or something like that. So... Um, I need a, a bit of space to spread things out in. Actually, I bought a new desk because the book went down all right. I thought I might write another one. And it's great because it's see-through. It's like plastic 
and then it's got like a shelf underneath. So it's perfect, really. So the theory is if I write another book, I can have my computer on the top and then I could slide all the objects underneath and they'd be there like underneath the plastic. And they'll be protected as well. Looking at me. Yeah. <laughs> so, that's, that's great. It's like the desk has been designed for you. Yeah, and I was really excited by that. So when you went away and wrote it in other places, did you have to take light objects with you? No, I had loads of stuff. like, And some things never even got wrote about. I had clothes in there. Yeah, just anything. I just piled it into this hold all. And then sometimes, you know, I'd be writing and I'd decide, okay, let's go into that next thing. And I'd just throw it on the floor. Like, there's some pictures of shirts and things. So they're just from me throwing them on the floor and then taking a picture. And then I would put the picture into the document that I was writing so that I could look at it. Again, that was something that you never would be able to do without a computer. Yeah. You know, so I had like a visual thing to be able to refer to. Because I thought you had to keep it tied to the objects, you know. It really feels like it is. And it feels very authentic. It doesn't feel like you've got all the objects and someone's come and lit it well and done the photo shoot. You can tell there's such a personal connection to them. And and it's very unintrusive, the design of it. It feels like a very artistic object, the book. But it never feels like the photo of the object kind of encroaches on what you're saying about it. And there's real creativity. I mean... When the book arrived, because of it having a lot of colour printing in it, that meant there were only certain places could print it. Then we had this crazy thing that happened where the last two words of the book were missing. <laughs> and it had been printed. And uh, I only found out when I was doing the audio book. We were doing the audio book and uh, we got to the end. The book has got an epilogue, but, you know, there's this, like, bit, and I, I'm leave a hospital. Yeah, I'm doing a spoiler now for you. But... Um, and and it goes, I go, I, it was time, and, and you can see a T, and then the rest of it was missing. So, so, so they had to kind of destroy the copies that had been done. And, yeah, presumably and they couldn't just destroy that page because they'd been bound. No, no we'd, I mean, to the publisher's credit, they they really kind of stepped up to the mark there and sorted it out. But it was unbelievable, you know. So so finished copies of the book didn't arrive until less than a month before it came out. But when I got one and held it, I was just so happy. You know, it was like, it's not that often in your life that you get something right. And I'm not taking the credit for that, you know, that because I say Julian did the design and stuff. Loads of people were involved with it. But, you know, when you just, like you say, just the feel of it, the smell of it, the way that when you open it, you don't lose your page that easily, you know, just everything about it was was great. And I just, I did that thing, you know, where you kind of, you put it on a table and then you kind of walk out of the room and come back in and look at it. And then and then I took it up to where the bookshelves are and I put it in among some other books to see what the spine looked like next to other books. You know, I, I, I like enjoyed doing that. Yeah, I, when I was reading it, it felt like all the design in the photos were like the pianist who adds so much to it but who is unintrusive, you know, they're never too loud. It's like your voice was just there but it all supported you so brilliantly. The book just sang to me in so many ways. And I think as a fan of your work, but also the wordplay and the pace of it and the humour, like I said, it is so funny. And um, I think it's going to spark so much joy for so many people. I'm sure it is already because it's out. That's given me heart palpitations about the... Because, <laughs> you know, when people ask about reading your audio book, it's like, oh, is it weird to say it out loud? But you never dream that you're going to find a mistake like that and at the very end when you think no, it was, was it as you read it you didn't yeah it was think- mental I mean thank god we did do the audiobook early on so we caught it in time you know 
but I just couldn't believe it. And they said, oh, well, maybe it's an old version. And then they, <laughs> and they just checked, and it wasn't. It wasn't any, but, you know, it was that thing that at the end, a few changes were made, and, and it, yeah, and you it keep got, thinking got, it's it the got final bit, draft. It got a bit hectic, yeah, and yeah. it just got overlooked. But what a crazy thing to happen! You and know. out of any two words as well, they're really because yeah. you put on your granddad's coat, don't you? I do, yeah. Which I really love that. And there's a photo of that, and I yeah. could really well, I think that photo was responsible for it because we changed the kind of. It was a bit hard to read, so they changed that image, and then I think it got just got pasted over the last words it's so scary that things like that <laughs> um, you know Susie Dent who does Countdown she's like a word expert okay. she wrote a book about the history of language and stuff and they printed the wrong draft and it went out so it was a really early draft with loads of loads of stuff in it that wasn't and I remember her just tweeting about it going we've had to it's just like it's like an anxiety dream isn't it <laughs> when you think yeah it's... well somebody told me about it happened to Jonathan Franzen or something that he was doing a you know, it got to the stage where he was doing a live reading and he's reading an excerpt from the book and then he suddenly realises that it's the wrong draft of the book. Imagine that. And you know what? To some people, they wouldn't notice. But it's almost like the imperial leather thing you wanting to get. It's so important to you. A book takes so much time and effort and you labour over every word and it's so important that it's right. And it feels like such a simple thing that you just go, oh, I wasn't aware that I had to be in control of that element of it. I thought I'd sent it off and that was it. So I'm really glad it got. But you didn't have to handwrite it into every copy. <laughs> we consider that at one point. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks so much. I've really loved talking to you. Well, thank you. Brilliant. I've, I've, I've enjoyed it too. It's been really nice to talk to you. Thank you. And thank you for listening wherever you are. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to make sure you never miss an episode. And you can leave us a review and help us get the word out. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or Jarvis's work, go to penguin.co.uk forward slash podcasts. I'm Izzy Sutty. See you next time. Listener.